Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Elizabeth Alexander. She is a prize-winning and New York Times bestselling author, renowned poet, educator, scholar, and cultural advocate. She is also the president of the Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder in the arts, culture, and humanities. Recently, Time Magazine named her as one of 100 most influential people of 2022. On today's show, we are discussing her latest book, The Trayvon Generation, which was released in April. Elizabeth Alexander, welcome to the show. I am so excited to speak with you and Kazi. So great for you to be on the show. So I begin these interviews with guests telling a bit about themselves. As I mentioned in your bio, you are a creative writer, an academic, and a cultural leader. And so I want you to describe yourself by naming the intellectual tradition of poets, of scholars, and of leaders in which you follow. Well, for me, it starts in my home, my parents, Clifford and Adele Alexander, Uh, my mother, a historian who taught me detail, meticulousness. She's a historian of women's and African-American women's history. So the importance of our stories. She taught me that for everyone, family stories are history and that we will only understand our history, particularly as people of color, particularly as women, if we look at and listen to those family stories. And, uh, you know, Adele is serious and there is no half-stepping with her. And so That is one part of what I grew up with. The other part of what I grew up with, my father, uh, Clifford Alexander, a righteous race man, uh, a fighter, impatient, speaks truth to power, uh, says what needs to be said, uh, moves fearlessly in the world. Uh, So I aspire to what comes from each of those parents I was so blessed to have. And both of them are also, uh, as I was born in Harlem, USA, and they grew up in Harlem, USA. And my whole extended family tried to contribute to the betterment of our Black community in Harlem, USA, uh, doing medical work and social work and uh, and, you, you know, my grandfather on my father's side uh, was the building manager of the Harlem YMCA. These were community people who served Black people. And uh, that is that is really the ground soil of who I am. Intellectually, I would name, and there are, of course, so many, um, but as a poet, 
Gwendolyn Brooks, hmm. Robert Hayden, Lucille Clifton, moving from poetry and bridging into philosophy and thought, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, uh, those are, Entisaki uh, uh, Shange, I would mm. also add, those are some of the um, pillars of my um, creative and intellectual life, as well as the entire Black tradition of jazz and jazz-adjacent music, where I think so much of our freedom and creativity and power is to be found. Mm, mm. That's so wonderful and beautiful. And the different um, aspects of folks who are creating Black culture really um, served as a model for you as you, you know, um, write and document Black culture for yourself. That's wonderful. I want to talk about moments of vulnerability because a couple of years ago, I was a at a lecture and I was sitting there and I said, you know, often we talk a lot about the accomplishments and our achievements, but we don't talk enough about the moments of insecurity that we had publicly. And so for every interview that I have had um, since doing this um, for the podcast, I've asked the guest if they would tell me a time during their career, your career, in which you had a moment of self-doubt, but then I would like you to couple that with a moment of triumph. Well, I'm glad that you couple the two. Um, I just was very, very honored to receive an honorary degree from Spelman College, which was you know, meaningful in every way that you can imagine. And the commencement speaker was Stacey Abrams, and and she's a Spelman alum, and listening to her speak to those young women about to graduate, um, I felt like I was about to graduate when I heard her say, don't let other people take credit for your work. Don't, she didn't use this language, but essentially she said, you know, don't hide your light under a bushel, to use that beautiful phrase. Um, and to to hear her talk about how so often women demure you know, or demur, um, and will sort of, you know, offer credit collectively, which I think as a Black feminist in Black traditions, talking about the collective is what I do, because I, I don't actually think we achieve anything without comrades and community. But I think sometimes there can be uh, a little bit of um, false modesty that comes in that, because, it, you know, it is important to think about all of this together. So thanking you for the question. Uh, and I would say, you know, there are so many moments of doubt. Um, you know, there are, I mean, I think about um, not doubt so much, but uh, you know, being a, a an English professor in my first job and having a, a colleague, a senior colleague in an essentially white department say to me, Lucille Clifton, Langston Hughes, that's not poetry. You don't really think that's poetry. And, you know, having to be ready for so many such moments to kind of draw myself up to the people who decide on my employment and tell them why they're wrong. And tell them why actually that is a, you know, culturally ignorant assessment um, that, you know, takes a little bit of drawing oneself together. And I think feeling like, you know, I always want to make the best argument, um, but also knowing that you cannot always convince people and you got to just keep it moving uh, is something that happens uh, often, all the time. Uh, I think about 
so many moments from my life as a student through my life as a professional where as the only one in a room or not always even the only one in the room, I have hesitated to speak up and then heard other people uh, make the same point and get praise for it or make a, a much less compelling point uh, or knowing that my comments would have helped to move the conversation along or been in some way edifying. Or as my father always says, you know, you have to speak up because even if you don't know someone is listening, someone is always listening and someone always needs your words. So I think that, you know, having had many times that, that feeling that, ah, I wish I'd said it, or I wish I'd said it better. Um, and just trying to do better, you know, the, the, the next time, um, you know, you, you don't get published in certain places. You, you know, my, a poem for which I'm now very well known, the Venus Hottentot title poem of my first book. I want to tell people that that poem was rejected. I don't know, 25 times. I mean, I had a fat folder of rejection letters of a poem that, you know, has been, been meaningful to many, many people. And what I always say is that the mainstream publications, the so-called white publications that didn't publish many people of color at the time, they rejected it, but also the black publications rejected it. Um, but my rule with that was always the, if it comes back in the morning mail, because then we used to do things by post, send it out in the afternoon mail, you know, that you just have to keep it moving and not take those rejections to heart. And not everything uh, does uh, come easy. Uh, in my personal life, uh, many things, um, but surely the unexpected and tragic uh, loss of my husband um, uh, when my children were 11 and 12 um, was a, not a moment, not an hour, not a week, not a month, you know, months and months and months of vulnerability. Um, and I think that what I learned in that is that we all have vulnerabilities. And so uh, at the time I was chair of the African-American studies department at Yale, as you know, and uh, saying to that community, uh, that beloved community, um, yes, you can help me that I was a person who felt I was there to be helpful as a person, you, you know, um, who was a professor and a department chair, but to say to my students, yes, please bring us food. Thank you. And to say thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you and to receive their love and kindness and to say, yes, we are broken. We are devastated. I cannot come to work. To, to do that in community, um, I think, was, was very important for someone uh, who is a giver. And I think it's important for everybody in a community to know that we all have things to give to each other. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. When the community comes together, we can hold each other up. And that is one of the... Um, most powerful lessons that I'm gathering from what you have said. And, you know, as your father said, um, someone is always in need of your words. Well, the words that you provided with us in the Trayvon generation are so necessary. And so I want us to segue into talking about this collection. So can you tell me how this collection emerged? 
and what is it about? Yes, um, this book, so, you know, as we all know all too well, uh, March of 2020, um, the nation, the world um, went into the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis. uh, And from there, months of uh, not only isolation from each other, um, I mean, you know, I, I spent I don't know, three, three months, I don't know, without seeing a human being, you know, in my home, my children were in college and they had off campus apartments. So they were there. I was uh, worried about my elderly parents and we didn't know so much about COVID transmission. So trying to keep them safe, you know, no work, you know, no, no friends. So we were all in that place coupled with devastating loss, coupled with devastating loss and fear in communities of color, uh, in particular, where we saw the losses were so disproportionate. And then to the police murder of George Floyd, uh, you know, the nation uh, and the world really um, erupted into another uh, very, very uh, uh, intense and and vocal and tragic and powerful uh, moment of, of protest. So I needed to write something. Um, and I thought about uh, my own sons um, at college age at the time, their friends who are like sons to me, the generations of students I've taught, young black and brown people uh, who I, I, I knew, I saw, I experienced that in this long period of watching so much death, so much murder, so much shooting and watching it on their phones, and watching it over and over and over again. And, you know, in this era where the technology is that, um, you know, we see it, I have been thinking always, I need to listen to you young people. I need to love you. I need to give you uh, what I have to offer, which is love and food and poetry and black culture and black music and black art, you know, the things that I've always taught. Mm-hmm. But also, I need to see what you all are making. So out of all of that came uh, an essay that I wrote for The New Yorker called The Trayvon Generation that um, was meaningful to a lot of people when it came out. And when it came out, I realized I wasn't finished because, of course, the issue wasn't isolated to that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kept building and adding and using, again, the tools I have of close reading of poetry. You know, the book itself has beautiful, beautiful art woven throughout it that I wanted to be part of the experience of reading the book, that you would look at something by a painting by Jordan Castile or by Glenn Ligon or by Lorna Simpson or a photograph by Dawood Bey uh, as you were reading the words, as you were learning about history, as you were, we were meditating on the future, as I was taking us through a visit I made to Angola prison, that all of this would come together in a sort of coat of many colors sort of book. Um, that is, is what we, is what we have now. And it's extraordinary, Elizabeth. When I read The Trayvon Generation, I thought about um, your well-known article, Can You Be Black and Look at This, reading the Rodney King videos, in which I felt that that article set up 
the Trayvon generation um, in many ways because you talk about collective memory and storytelling. And in the beginning of that article, you write, at the heart of this essay is a desire to find a language to talk about my people, which I feel is the same spirit that you write with for the Trayvon generation. But you know, you wrote that um, article in the early um, 90s, and nearly 30 years later, what else did you feel like you needed to say um, that captures this particular moment in the 21st century, but then more specifically, what you needed to say to this generation? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that article. And I, I mean, 30 years, Lord have mercy. <laughs> it, it's been a minute, but, you know, a, a, and about a, a month ago, uh, there was a national marking of, of that moment of uh, Rodney King's police beating, uh, being um, videotaped in what was a whole different stage of our technology, right? I mean, that was George Holiday with his video camera out of his window looking across the street. And in order to watch that, you would watch it on television and you would watch it when the news decided to show it to you as opposed to, you know, this kind of, um, uh, you know, violence on demand, the violence that you can't avoid that's around us everywhere now. And in that Rodney King um, essay, I go back another couple of generations to Emmett Till, 1955, where the technology of that, when his mother did the incalculably brave thing of saying, I am bringing my child's uh, lynched body uh, back to Chicago from Money, Mississippi. I am putting his, I am opening his casket. I am inviting anybody to come and walk through that church. I am letting Jet Magazine photograph my child because, as she said, I want the world to see what they did to my child. And that that catalyzed um, uh, understanding of what had happened before and what would happen after, not just with Emmett Till, but with so many of us. So this ongoing question, I think, still today is in all of our incredible diversity as Black people. I mean, you know, we are everything. <laughs> we are everything. <laughs> yes, um, yes. What is it that holds us together? And I think... I, you know, I've, I think I've, I've now sharpened in my thinking. I mean, then I say, is it violence, race-based violence and its ever-present possibility that links us as a people? And now I would say it is the dehumanization that began when we were brought to this country as chattel slavery and classified as three-fifths human being. It was that fundamental moment of dehumanization that the nation still has not gotten past. And isn't it profound, if you look at the poetry and the art that is in this, this book, that these people, us, classified as subhuman, which is a precondition, by the way, to doing violence and death, that we have, I think, disproportionately showed the world how to be human in our deeds, in our words, in our acts, in our culture. Mm. Right, right. And when I read the book and also when I came across the article in summer of 2020, um, I was moved by um, the insistence to name the Trayvon generation. Um, but I want you to think um, with me out loud um, about 
you're thinking behind the name, the Trayvon generation, as opposed to the Black Lives Matter generation. And I was talking to a scholar friend of mine and a colleague on this show, Amanda Joyce Hall, um, and we were really thinking about um, the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And what we concluded was that Trayvon Martin's death shook us Yet it wasn't until the non-indictments of Michael Brown, of um, Eric Gardner, and so many um, in 2014 that radicalized us. And so perhaps my question actually is more pointed, which is the insistence to emphasize the name of the origin as opposed to the galvanizing moment, I think is really pivotal, but I would like you to expand on that. And perhaps you want to um, read a bit. Yes. Well, I'd say a couple things. I mean, first of all, uh, I, I believe in storytelling. I believe in living life human being by human being by human being by human being. I believe in empathy. And I think that by telling the stories and calling the names um, for me with my, you know, where I, I stand with my particular, you know, set of, of, of uh, abilities. Um, I, I think that it, it, it needs to have a name. I believe in uh, in emblematic moments, I, you know, I think that there are some figures, I mean, maybe we could have said the Tamir Rice generation. And I've had a lot of interesting conversations around this book um, where people talk about the story that ravaged their hearts the most. Uh, and I think through all the stories and, and, and some, some days it's Tamir Rice for me, right? 12 years old. Uh, and the videotaped image of him dancing outside that gazebo and the two seconds it took that police officer to shoot him dead. So, you know, we, you know, there are so many of these stories, but I think that with Trayvon Martin, what was very striking is, as you know, 2012, he's walking home from the store. You know, he's got, you know, it's dusk. He's got a nice tea. He's got his Skittles. He's wearing his hoodie. He's, he's you, he's my sons. He's everybody. Um, you know, going about his, his, his business and that it's a whole narrative. George Zimmerman hunts him. We have the tape where he's told not to, you know, he continues and is not stopped. He hunts this young person and shoots him dead and then makes up a cover narrative, which also was part of the legal uh, aspects as well. You know, did he have THC in his system? Did he, you know, all of this, all of this kind of, of nonsense. So that happens. And interestingly, that's one that's not videotaped. Um, but I think what converged for me, as far as this book goes, is a year later, 2013, you, you know, you mentioned the non-indictments when George Zimmerman, it, it, you know, gets off in his trial at that same time. Ryan Coogler's extraordinary Fruitvale station comes out. So here we have life and art and generations coming together. And this young black filmmaker makes a film about another videotaped killing of Oscar Grant in the Oakland Bay area in Fruitvale station. And as you know, in that gorgeous movie, it's a day in the life. So you spend two hours with a human being 
his moods, his ups, his downs, his this, he does that. He gets crabs for his mama. He plays with his daughter. He, you know, has a, a moment at work, you know, every single aspect of his day. And you know, as the film goes on, where it is headed, that this character who you've been investing in for these two hours is going to be the victim of racist violence, racist state violence at the end. So I felt that it was like this, this is an offering to the moment. And that seemed like a place to start. And let me just read a little bit from uh, that chapter, just to think about names. This one was shot in his grandmother's yard. This one was carrying a bag of Skittles. This one was playing with a toy gun in front of a gazebo. Black girl in bright bikini, black boy holding cell phone. This one danced like a marionette as he was shot down in a Chicago intersection. The words, the names, Trayvon, Laquan, Bikini, Gazebo, Lucy, Skittles, two seconds, I can't breathe, traffic stop, dashboard cam, 16 times, his dead body lay in the street in the August heat for four hours. The kids got shot and the grown-ups got shot, which is to say the kids watched their peers shot down and their parents' generation get gunned down and beat down and terrorized as well. The agglomerating spectacle continues. Here are a few we know less well. Danny Ray Thomas, Johnny Germain Rush, Nania Kane, Dejuan Hall, Atatiana Jefferson, Demetrius Brian Hollins, Jacqueline Craig and her children, and then the iconic Alton Sterling, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, Brianna Taylor, Philando Castile. I call the young people who grew up in the past 25 years the Trayvon generation. They always knew these stories. These stories formed their worldview. These stories helped instruct young African Americans about their embodiment and their vulnerability. The stories were primers in fear and futility. The stories were the ground soil of their rage. The stories instructed them that anti-Black hatred and violence were never far. And, you, you know, what you also offer in the book is of this reframe in many ways, Elizabeth, of our um, art makers as they memorialize and commemorate um, our people. You write, in Black culture, our poetry sometimes holds and memorializes our history amid insufficient moralizing and in the face of scant or buried histories black poets have made experience solid and enduring in too many examples to count in that reading and just thinking about black artists writ large tell me how you think about poets who are at times constructors of monuments and memorials. Well, I think, you know, isn't it beautiful with this, um, this, I'll call it a technology of poetry um, that with this sort of spirit work uh, with this tool um, with this art form that we have told and, and, and made permanent our stories um, and, and our histories and, our people. So I think that, uh, you know, in the book, including great poets, Lucille Clifton, Gwendolyn Brooks, Natasha Trethewey, Adrian Sue, Clint Smith, um, Amiri Baraka, uh, I wanted to show how over and over those words uh, that we have always been ingenious 
about how we remember and make permanent. And, uh, you know, not just, I think, because I'm a poet, but um, because in that art form, I, I think precisely because of the way it can last forever and the way it can be transmitted and the way that it is, if you will, for free, um, that we've managed to do really extraordinary things. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you um, was the chair of African-American studies at Yale for several years. And I earned my PhD in Africana studies. And this podcast is appropriately named um, African-American studies um, for the New Books Network. And so there's a line in the book where you conceptualize African-American studies and you said it like this, the lessons of African-American studies is that the call to the triumphal is a siren song. And I think about how people are documenting history, but I also think about a discipline that emerged out of the Black Power Movement to reconceptualize who is a student and what students should study. Tell me, what do you mean here when you say that African-American studies is the call to the triumphal in a siren song? Well, I think that what we have to be really careful of when there are aspects of our history that are about justice denied, that are about fighting for our power, making our voices heard, um, you know, uh, the quest for rights, civil rights, human rights, all of those themes of African-American history, um, I think can sometimes make us feel in the way that we all celebrate. I'm one of them. I mean, if there's a first Black anything, uh, we note it um, and we want to feel that we have overcome right? You know, we want to feel that we have arrived. We want to feel that uh, a uh, Black person in a position where where we haven't been before is going to make everything better. And I think we really understand now, especially in the post-Obama era, that, you know, if we look at, let's say, representation, Ketanji Brown-Jackson on the Supreme Court, it matters. I mean, it matters. We do have to count. We do have to, to stand up we, and cheer. We do have to feel triumphal. But we watched those hearings and the way in which this Black woman was treated throughout her hearing. And we know the court she's going on to at this particular moment in our country's history. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson is not going to be able to triumph over all of the problems in our legal system with regard to race. So I think that, you know, kind of the um, Lucille Clifton talks about um, being not either or, but and, but and, right? Uh, that, you know, you don't have to make a choice or we don't have to have simplistic narratives that say, you know, once we were enslaved and now we are presidents and everything, everything is fixed. Um, and that also uh, triumphalism itself, nationalism itself, are um, isms to be wary of. Uh, how do we continue to get to our humanity, to our common humanity, and to an understanding that 
struggle is an eternal part of of progress and the human experience in society. Mm-hmm. And to that point, um, in part three of the book, you have this really great passage um, with your father um, and how to navigate the world. Um, And you discuss a philosophy that your father taught you. Could you share with our audience about that teaching um, from a father to a child about independence and self-reliance in the world um, where racism is so pervasive? Well, I think that, um, you know, my dad really, really, I, I, I just feel very blessed for having him. And, and these are my words, not his words. So I'm sort of distilling how I experienced his philosophy. Um, that you, if you accept the paradigms or the boxes that we're put in, you know, we will never feel that we measure up. Uh, so that we have to always be able to think outside the box. We need to always understand that if we spend all of our time saying, we're good enough, we're smart enough, really we are, <laughs> that for some people you're never going to prove it, so that what you have to do is work hard, you know, all of the stuff about twice as good, three times as good, like that's still, I still believe that, um, but to be willing in your mind to walk away. And so, to, you know, his practical thing was always carry FU money, <laughs> by, by which he meant if you have to walk away from, you know, the man, the job, <clears throat> the situation, you can do so on your own two feet, that you're never a supplicant, that you can always pick yourself up and not be afraid that you won't be able to put yourself back together again. Um, and I just find that writ large, that's like excellent philosophy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And with philosophy, there are words. And in the beginning of this book, you talk about words. I want, um, if you could read a bit um, about words um, for our audience. Yes. This is in the beginning of the book. Words are vessels filled with meaning and intent. Our language is what we live in, and thus how we collectively express ourselves, one voice at a time. If we believe in the power of words and that words matter, and that precision with words matters most, and if we believe that words not only carry meaning but also carry something human, that shared language and the exchange of language are among the things that make us human. And if we believe that striving for absolute truth with the word is one of the ways that human beings can communicate deeply enough in order to overcome that which is not understood between us, if we believe also that there is too much language in the air right now that is imprecise, false, harmful, operating not to bridge understanding but to create misunderstanding to divide and that there is very precise if inelegant language that is being used for the purpose of misnaming and dividing us then we might ask what is the power of our words how are we responsible for them 
What can we do with them? And do words move us closer to the hoped for ideal of beloved community? I want to pair that with the epigraph that opens the collection. And it's a line drawn from Amiri Baraka's poem, What Will Be the Sacred Words? As you beautifully write, words are derived from language. And with all of the violence and turmoil and death in the world, I want to ask you, as I read the collection, I wonder what are the sacred words that come to mind for you? Have you given any thought to what those words might be? Well, I think, you know, I, I use, I really love that um, Baraka quotation from the poem Kaaba. And where I put it in the book, it's meant to be a real question. It's meant to be a question that, you know, almost in a scriptural way that I hope that readers will return to over and over and over again, as I do. For, for me, the sacred words are the question, what will be the sacred words? Because they might vary depending on circumstance uh, or on, on the needs of a particular moment or situation. But I certainly do think uh, that, uh, because I also believe, I know as a poet that um, words carry, you know, souls from one soul to another. This is how I give you who I am. Um, that uh, a word I do come back to is love, but love in the way that I explored it in my inaugural poem for President Obama, for that poem, Praise Song for the Day, I ask, what if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond filial, marital, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. So I'm not talking about like, I love you, romantic love. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a very, very, very large sense, uh, an inclusive sense, and beyond two people sense of what the force of love can be. That's something I, I, I keep meditating on and returning to and that continues to kind of be rich. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Elizabeth, we know that you love um, people, you love our culture, and in this text, The Trayvon Generation, it is sure um, reflects that. I want to know, amid all of the things that you are doing, um, what can we expect next from you? Um, well, what you can expect next is the pretty amazing work that my colleagues at the Mellon Foundation are are doing. Um, uh, you know, as the as the nation's largest funder in arts and culture, in prison higher education, in humanities and higher education, archives, libraries, uh, and now in work that we call humanities in place, uh, and and our work in the monuments project. You know, I, I just have an extraordinary uh, group of colleagues here, and we are trying to, you know, in a way, it, it feels like teaching. It feels like the classroom, but the the classroom is is the country, 
um, trying to think about how our stories are told, trying to think about how to uh, share a wider range of art and culture, how to always think about the question of access with these uh, great treasures and resources that are to be found in learning and critical thinking and arts and culture. Um, and thinking about the very, very complex, very, very rich, multiple strands that only if you look at them together can you understand as American history. That's what we're trying to do writ large. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm doing absolutely all the time. And it's, it's pretty exhilarating. Indeed. So before we go, Elizabeth, I would like you to read one more passage. Yes. Um, which shall I, we have, I think maybe we were here. Would that yes. be good? Yes, that is fantastic. Okay, wonderful. We were here. And this, I, I should say, comes at a point in the book where I've uh, talked about Confederate monuments. I've talked about telling American stories in landscape, and I've talked about a roadside memorial to Sandra Bland, who, as we know, um, died in police custody in Prairie View, Texas. We were here. We walked this earth. We lived in community. We built this city. We tilled this land. We colored and cultured this place. We were unceremoniously taken, and so we re-ceremonialize. We ritualized because we were unceremoniously taken, because we were owned and things like tractors or threshers or sacks of potatoes. Our children were thought to be machines put to work from when they were very small. Some as young as four or five pulled ropes and chains continuously to operate large, heavy, often elaborately decorated ceiling fans called punkas to create a breeze for the plantation guests while they dined and shoot insects from them and their meals or to cool them while they rested. Other enslaved small children spent the days in tiny stone structures from which they watched the cane, given the charge of running to tell if the valuable crop was set afire. That for the slave was childhood. People thought to be property or machines or sex dolls died, and then black people figured out a way to remember and memorialize them in death, to animate and humanize them. No wonder the soul, how we existed and sustained across the by and by was such an important black belief. So we memorialized with songs that preserve and pass on indelibly powerful phrases like wade in the water. We crossed people over and then decades and centuries later, we made art like revelations to enact that crossing over. Alvin Ailey choreographed revelations to those songs and from those rituals he remembered from his Texas childhood. Songs sung by people whose many elders were themselves enslaved. And the dance itself became the memorial, marking passage of the many thousands gone and how they lived and how they died, but were at least properly taken to a place imagined beautiful, the eternal, the by and by. Elizabeth Alexander is a prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author, renowned poet, educator, scholar, and cultural advocate. She is also the president of the Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder in the arts, culture, and humanities. Her latest collection is titled The Trayvon Generation, which is published by 
Grand Central Publishing. Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.